Wash Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Educator. For today's Beef Wash Podcast, we're going to take a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch Podcast is going to be a 30,000-foot view, a big-picture view of the Canadian cattle industry. And to discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Dr. Jessica Sperber, who's a Nebraska Extension Assistant Professor and Feedlot Specialist in the Department of Animal Science, and also a Canadian native by birth, and also Ryder Lee, who's General Manager for the Canadian Cattle Association. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Glad to. So Jessica Ryder, before we dive into the topic today, I'll just give you an opportunity, each of you, to tell a little more about yourself, your backgrounds, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I guess I'll lead off. Well, I grew up in, in central Alberta, Canada, where my family has a cow-calf and grain operation. Uh, moved south for graduate school in the United States, completing a master's in Texas, and then my PhD at the University of Nebraska. Uh, after completion of that, I actually went back home to central Alberta and southern Alberta and worked in the feedlot sector a little bit on the feed technical service side of things. I uh, did that for about a year before moving back south to my current position at UNL, as you mentioned, Aaron, a feedlot specialist and extension assistant professor. So I had a lot of experiences growing up in the Canadian beef industry, uh, you know, had a lot of great opportunities. My family is obviously part of the agriculture community and heavily involved in the cow-calf sector. And so it's um, really exciting to be able to talk about this today, having experienced both Canadian, uh, the Canadian beef industry and the dynamics of the beef industry up there and then how that relates into the United States beef industry dynamics. Ryder, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and, and your role there now with the Canadian Cattle Association. Yeah, so I'm the general manager. I've been doing that for a little over a year, so worked on the operations side of the management. I grew up in a, I'd say, small but a fairly decent-sized cow-calf operation in southern Saskatchewan, so like just north of, of Montana in those uh, grasslands and pretty arid part of the country after I finished the animal science degree at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. I ended up working for, for Dow Agrosciences at the time, which is Corteva nowadays, and uh, selling crop supplies to grain farmers. And that took me across, you know, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Manitoba, and I finished in Ontario selling corn and bean seed to, to dairy farmers for the most part. So gotten a long way from that cow-calf background and and wasn't thinking that would be the forever type of job. And I ended up getting a job in Ottawa for the Canadian Cattle Association and working the political angle there and did that for about a decade and then came back to Saskatchewan to lead the, the provincial organization there, the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association. I did that for another seven years and, and then boomeranged back to the CCA like I said, a couple of years ago. So I've been lucky enough to, through my career, to be able to see different parts of the country and, and the different agriculture and then get engaged in the, the policy side of things. So those all kind of overlap and build toward where I am now. And, and it's great because I can, you know, my brother runs the ranch I grew up on. I can still relate what we do to uh, people that are important to me through throughout my whole life. So Jessica, share a little bit about how you and Ryder have been connected because there's a little bit of history there as well. Sure. So the Canadian Cattle Association has a program for youth 
well, I guess 18 to 35, I believe is the ages, but um, it's a mentorship program. And so you apply for the program, go through a series of interviews and selections, and then uh, they pick a group of individuals that get a one-year mentorship. So I did this program in 2016. I would have been a Canadian cattle young leader from 2016 to 2017. And Ryder was actually my mentor during this. So that's where Ryder and I met. But Ryder likes to joke that I moved to the States almost immediately once he was selected as my mentor because I started graduate school in January of 2017 and Ryder became my mentor in September of 2016. But we've been very fortunate because Ryder does uh, make a lot of trips down to the States, both coming to Nebraska Cattlemen's Conference. He attends events in Kansas, large cattle feeding states. And then also uh, we see each other at National Cattlemen's Beef Association annual convention each year. So it's been a great mentorship. Uh, yes, going on eight years now Ryder which is wild and ages us both a little bit but really learned a lot from Ryder over the years and it's exciting to be able to do a podcast with him today. So let's just talk about the Canadian beef industry in terms of big picture thinking about cow numbers cattle numbers the feeding industry uh, give us a broad perspective of what the Canadian cattle industry looks like. Well it's it's interesting because it's you know Canada's a pretty long and spread out country you look at the u.s and the, the big square and and you, most of it is is where you can farm and, and canada a lot of it is the, the farmable spots are, are along that canada u.s border except out out in the west where you know manitoba alberta and saskatchewan and british columbia reaches into the north a little bit but uh, so a good chunk of our cattle are in uh, saskatchewan and alberta and and a lot of those operations would look like your your northern states, your your Montana, your, your North Dakota, the neighbors there, and uh, would be you know I call it arid production. But when you get east of the Great Lakes, you get a lot more moisture, and uh, so your your wintering a lot will take place under cover, both uh, for for animal care reasons, but also for the land reasons. It just is uh, wet and soft there. For much of the year and so if you had cattle out there through the year you'd just be punching your land out so it's it's very different and, and size of operation too i guess would be would be different your your arid western places are are a lot you know bigger on acreage but uh your your production that you expect from from rainfall and from soil is a lot different than you'd expect again out east where you you've got a lot more rainfall a lot longer frost-free periods. So you've got, you know, grass-based extensive operations in the West, and, and you've got a lot more growing corn and, and getting into undercover winter places uh, in the East. So it's it's sure diverse, um, which makes it interesting for me work and, and the people that I work with having a, a national conversation about, about things because depending on what the issue is, it will look very different from uh, one end of the country to the other and what we're, we're championing. But uh, to get to some of the numbers, you know, it's um, we're, we're about three and a half million beef cows in, in Canada. So, you know, a lot of the time our, our quick thumb math when, when we're talking U.S. numbers versus Canadian numbers will we'll divide by 10 and that applies in the, the cattle industry as well. A good chunk of it, almost half, is in that Alberta and Saskatchewan area and, and 
especially in the cattle feeding and finishing side of things. But there's also a, a significant amount of that in Ontario where, you know, you can grow corn crops that uh, we can't get anywhere near in Western Canada just because of the length of, of your growing season. Ryder, I think you make a good point. Obviously, from the west to the east, similar to the United States, cow calf production and agriculture in general is quite different in what you would see in Western Canada compared to Central Eastern Canada. And so I think that you really highlighted that well, just very, very similar to the to the range that we see in the United States. Yeah, Ryder, just to give some perspective, again, I think a difference in climate uh, as we were getting on, as we record this, it's pretty cold for us here in Nebraska, but you were mentioning to me you're going to have a high of 30 below there Fahrenheit today, and so uh, that's uh, that's pretty cold, <laughs> and uh, we're we're feeling cold when we're having a high of minus one. So uh, there's uh, there's some definite challenges that you have up there compared to what we have here. Well, yeah, a guy never likes to be bragging about how cold it is, or or, or you know, living up the stereotypes, but but it does hit, and and uh, for for Western Canada, you know, there are some people that are calving right now on, on the seed stock side of things and and generally when you when you calve in January you you've got the facilities that that can handle this but everything gets a little different when it gets you know past 20 below it and it, it's it's a real challenge so I don't feel uh I feel bad for anybody who's who's out there but that's part of being a cattle producer is it's 365 days a year so let's just talk about the production from the cow-calf sector now through growing, finishing phase to harvest. What does that look like? And again, big picture view as we think about the Canadian cattle industry. Could you ask me that again? Like, I'm not sure you, you mean just like the, how the calendar, you know, what, what it looks like around a calendar year. So, you know, as we think about a cow-calf operation in Canada, and then we think about uh, at least in a few states, there would be a, you know, a weaning phase going into a background or straight to a feedlot and then, uh, you know, harvesting, I guess, uh, where, where does that occur? What does that look like there? Yeah. Well, I think many of your producers getting on a Canadian operation would, you know, the calendar works pretty similar. You got a lot of, you know, spring calving or, you know, in the last couple of decades, people are pushing calving back a little bit to, to match the grass growth and, and often will, uh, you know, wean come fall and, and a, a good majority will end up selling those calves often through an auction ring, you know, more and more video sales in recent years. So I, I think a lot of that, and that would head to backgrounding. Maybe your big, bigger calves would, would head to feedlot and, and be on that um, growth phase a little faster. So I don't know that you'd see a lot different comparing across the border and, and you see that in the genetics too as soon as you get out of the you know your hot southern states that might need some heat resistant cattle i think you get you get north enough and and it gets pretty interchangeable and, and you'd see that with breeding stock moving both directions and uh you know feeder cattle moving both directions as well it's not uh oh geez i need to change my operation to to adapt to these these foreign cattle it's it's pretty interchangeable as you get into the, the north north parts of the states so we think about cattle feeding what does that look like there i'm obviously the major feedstock down here in most yards is corn i mean there is some barley fed but not very much uh, what does that look like from a cattle feeding perspective there 
Yeah, that that would be a difference, I guess. And, and Jessica could speak to that too. I, I think probably better than me. But you you're, you do see more barley in the west and and corn in the east. Yeah. So Ryder was mentioning regional differences again. So obviously, a greater ability to grow corn in the eastern state or in the eastern provinces allows for more feeding of that corn. Right now, uh, barley is is pricing quite high in Canada and so we are seeing a lot more feeders in in Alberta and and possibly Saskatchewan that are bringing up corn either across the border or from from regional locations within Canada. Typically, you know, prior to these higher barley costs, we were seeing a lot more barley barley based diets. So that would just be a dry rolled barley included in the diet. And then, um, you know, when you compare barley and corn, barley has more protein, but less energy when compared to corn. And so you're really balancing diets just a little bit differently based on that. So then following suit. In terms of roughages in the diet, yes, we would see our typicals, typical haze, but uh, more so barley silage that we would be seeing included in the diet rather than corn silage in, in typical Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, finishing diets for the feedlot sector. And then as a protein source, we often will see canola meal included in the diet, largely a function of, of the large production of barley and canola that is produced in our, in our crop producing western provinces. So Jessica, you've seen both sides of the Canadian cattle industry, the United States cattle industry. I guess give some perspectives as you think about some of the issues both sets of producers face. How do they address those? How do they handle those? What are some interesting things from your perspective that you see that are different? Yeah, so I think today's weather is the perfect example being uh, minus 30 Fahrenheit as a high in, in Alberta today in many parts of the country when a lot of the fed cattle industry is in Alberta, Southern Alberta, you know, the challenges are the exact same in terms of both heat stress and cold stress. However, because we are assured to have quite a few more days of those really negative temperatures and maybe, you know, higher winds with snowfall, a lot of those feed yards are putting up windbreakers. So whether these are windbreakers that stay up year round or they're portable windbreakers, in addition to, um, you know, bedding, we, we utilize a lot of our draws for bedding sources. So obviously a lot less corn stalks is bedding in Canada and, and a lot more barley straw that we would see wheat straw, different types of straws as bedding sources. So those are things that you really need to consider, obviously, because you might have stretches of two, three weeks of of very negative numbers. Um, and so those cattle, you know, it's hard to recover them, recover them from that cold. And then obviously, when we talk about heat stress in, in Western Canada, not as big of a challenge. You know, Alberta does not have the humidity like per se where I'm located, southeast Nebraska, which, you know, and down into Kansas can be really a challenge uh, in terms of humidity when we look at that temperature humidity index. Alberta, really not that big of a challenge. Obviously, humidity is increasing more uh, into the provinces to the east, which would be Ontario. Um, but, you know, we have the large the large supply of feeder cattle and, and fat cattle that are on feed, we don't see such bad challenges with the temperature humidity index, strictly because we do not have as much humidity as some of our partners to the south. So as we were coming on, we were just talking about, you know, the relationship of the Canadian cattle industry, the relationship with that of the industry in the United States, and just thinking about numbers. And one of the interesting things to me is 
about half of the Canadian beef production is exported. In the United States, about 15% of our beef is exported. To put that in perspective, you've got you know around 3.5 million beef cows. We have about 30 million beef cows. So as you said, you know take the take the industry of the United States and uh, take a tenth of it, and that's kind of representative of what's happening in Canada. But obviously, for your producers, exports are a big deal. How does that shape? decision-making? How does that shape policy? Uh, how does that shape things for people in beef production in Canada? So before Ryder answers this, I'm just going to give some numbers. So these are the most recent numbers uh, for 2023 from the USDA ERS, just to give a broader scale picture, and then I'll let Ryder jump in uh, to the policy and different uh, and different ways of, of thinking of things. But for example, U.S. beef imports from Canada, so this would be red meat essentially, is about 9.2 million. So we're pulling quite a bit of beef from Canada into the U.S. And then the U.S. exports around 2.5 million pounds of beef to Canada. And then when we move to the live cattle import side, which I think is is honestly the, the more interesting of the two, live cattle imports from Canada into the U.S. So this is the U.S. bringing live cattle down from Canada 2023 was 680, just over 683,000 head. So a lot of cattle coming across the border, about 500,000 of those cattle coming from Canada into the U.S. were, were headed into uh, slaughter facilities, into federally inspected plants. And that's because our packing capacity in Canada is very limited in comparison to what we see in the United States. Yeah, the, the only thing I'd add to that on the numbers side is is lately in the past, I don't know, three or four years, we've become a strong feeder importer as well. So keeping, we've we've really struggled with our, our herd size just over drought, and uh, we've we've got good feeding facilities and and ability. Um, so we've been augmenting our own calf supply with with U.S. calves, and and so I think. Uh, that number is 268,000. Yeah, yeah. So for 2023. So yeah, 268,000 cattle going into a population of three and a half million is a pretty significant number. Yeah. And I think that just brings some perspective on uh, live cattle coming south. Basically, half of the cattle coming back south are cattle that went north, <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. I mean, uh, in terms of cattle going to slaughter, I mean, that's a little bit. Uh, ballparkish, but it's not too far off. Yeah, when you get to you try to get to net numbers, hey, and, and what is the the net trade? And but the 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 thing, like your question, is how does it affect decision making and, and policy work? Is really it's an integrated market, and and any one snapshot in time, you you can look at oh, everything's going this way or that way. But over time, it's generally you know, the cattle will go where the feed is or the cattle will go where the competitiveness is best or where there is opportunity. And, and we see that to a degree in the pig business as well, where moving cattle to feed or, or animals to feed is generally better than moving the feed to the animals. So I, I liked it better when we took turns where, where there would be a drought spot here or there and, and you would respond to that accordingly these these general droughts over the past couple of years are, are harder to deal with but that's a lot of what happens and then the other dynamic is just is a bit of the size piece that what the u.s does in the beef market 
um, domestically or internationally is is such a bigger impact than Canada has. So um, ability to supply a big retail chain uh, in North America or abroad is much better from a, from a U.S. standpoint or, you know, Brazil or Australia, similarly. And Canada has a smaller amount, you know, after we've served our domestic market, which is our number one market, you've got other things that you can you can go to market with. So that'll affect how we market our things as well, is can we serve the, the supplier that's looking for what we've got? Because we're very similar to the U.S. and we really rely on trade to bring up our carcass value. And, and I'd say most of our, our consumption desires in North America are pretty similar Canada versus U.S. We like steaks and roasts and burgers, but there's a whole lot of other parts of the animal that, uh, you know, other people around the world like different than we will and will pay a lot more for livers or tails or cheeks or short ribs into Korea, for example, is a huge one. And so we add a lot of value to, to our carcasses from export trade, and that drives a lot of what CCA does, similar to to NCBA is working on, you know, market access for everywhere we can go so that each part of the animal goes to the highest bidder. We don't have that access, you know, some of those things become pet food market or rendering or the pit, and and that becomes cost versus a revenue. So that drives a lot of what we do to maximize that carcass value. The other piece that's probably a, a little bit different than the U.S. is um, having that free-flowing trade with the U.S. from Canada brings that U.S. buyer into our market and brings some market discipline. We've got uh, a Cargill and a JBS are our, our major packing plants in Alberta, and then we've got a, a smaller plant, Harmony Beef, as well. So having the ability to sell across into the U.S. brings some some extra buyers there. In Ontario, we've just got um, Cargill as a main packer and, and some smaller um, plants that can export as well. So you need that second place bidder to make your first place bidder pay as much as possible. And so that market discipline is a huge part of, of what we need and look for in, in having that open, integrated trade. The other piece is, is competitiveness, what we work on with our federal government, our provincial governments, just how we can operate our, our freedom to operate and, you know, approvals of products and, you know, access to labor, all of the things that uh, can affect us uh, will affect how profitably we can we can go to market and, and, and sell our animals and, and what's left over at the end of the day. So I know this is a difficult question to answer, but if you were to go to the typical Canadian cow-calf producer, the typical Canadian cattle feeder, what would they say are the major issues for them in terms of things that are impacting their business and driving profitability? You know, it's it really is. Some of that is a, a local issue, and, and so it, it becomes um, labor supply. And, and can I find somebody to help me if I want to grow or if just just to keep going? And that access to labor in rural Canada is a real challenge. But there's also competition for land and competition for that labor supply. You know, the grain industry has had a, a great run. And, uh, you know, just about 
every acre of land that can be growing an annual crop on it is is converted and and even some of those marginal acres that are good and productive sometimes but not the majority of the year so that pressure from other kinds of farming is is a real tough one it you know I, I probably skipped over just the math of profitability what are costs versus revenues and you know we've seen some some prices for cattle in in record levels but costs have been chugging along too so um, that is so diverse what those those maths are for for different operations is what we've seen with with camfax is those really vary across cow calf operations but um so these these local challenges, whether it's what your neighbors are up to or, or whether you can find work, really do work, roll up into national industry challenges. And I think it's not that different from the U.S. You know, we're trying to compete for for young producers to renew the industry and grow it and bring innovation in, and and that comes down to to profitability, calling them into the industry, and then you know it rolls up again to can we compete with other jurisdictions in in global sales? What we can sell into other markets does that leave a profit at home? And the rest that I talk into is probably more that uh, that we work on as as industry associations trying to to keep that off people's minds, you know, provincial and national regulatory things, you know, approvals of technologies and and other things that impact competitiveness, you know, sustainability conversations that are going on within our own governments and and at international tables, you know, what what is carbon going to do am i going to be able to make that pay as a producer or is it just going to be a cost and all this esg stuff there's a lot of things that that come to my mind that you don't know how much of it is i i don't think it's the day-to-day worry of producers but it's sure in your mind as what is going to be that impact as i as i get going so happy to send people to meetings to work on that that's what we do on people's behalf I think a lot of the challenges, you know, that Ryder describes are really what we see down here in both the cow-calf, but, you know, heavily into the feedlot sector, as well as labor challenges, right? How are we going to find labor and employment for for today, but also for 10 years down the road when many of our producers are going to be looking toward retiring and and things like that. And so really the challenges that we see in, in the U.S. are very similar to the challenges that Canadians face every day as well. Yeah, I was going to say you brought up the issue of labor. And when I visit with folks, uh, that's almost always number one or number two in terms of things that they say are a major issue for them. Obviously, you brought up cost production, and that would be very similar here. Just, yes, we have seen some good prices, but input costs are just rapidly continuing to increase. And it doesn't matter whether it's the labor side or equipment or inputs from a fuel fertilizer uh, they're all just uh, rarely ever going down, almost always going up. And so, yeah, that that the things you described would be very similar to the challenges we face here. Well, I guess, Jessica, just give us some perspective. Obviously, growing up on a, a cow-calf operation there and now uh, being part of both the feedlot sector in Canada and in the United States, what are some other things from your perspective that you see, uh, I guess, would maybe be challenges that you see both industries face and in, and I just throw out maybe some creativity you see that people are looking towards to try to address some of those things. You know, so I think drought obviously has affected both countries similar, right? And so that's no 
no doubt. But what one thing that we do have an advantage for, especially from the feedlot side of things in, you know, Nebraska and, and other states is our ability to price in byproducts, specifically distillers, grains, wet corn, gluten feed, ethanol byproducts that are great cattle feeds, um, you know, that that many Albertans or cattle feeders in Canada Western Canada specifically are unable to price into their operations. They would love to have those feeds to be able to price in, you know, often restricted on on how they can get those feeds across the border and, and just how many tons um, they can get of them to price in against barley or corn or whatever concentrate they're using in their diet. I would say for the most part, really, growing up in Canada made me pretty prepared for what I see in the U.S. beef industry it's pretty much the exact same phases of production. Probably we have a lot less true backgrounding systems in Western Canada in comparison to what we would see in Oklahoma and Texas. But I mean, for the most part, it's that exact same beef value chain. One thing Ryder mentioned is, uh, you know, the difference in, well, I, I guess we'll just say color of cattle, right? My family runs Charlay Red Angus crosses or Charlay Simmental crosses. And so you see a lot more tan hided cattle. And when you go through a tour of feedlots in Southern Alberta, which would be our most concentrated feeding population, you see a lot more continental cross cattle. Just There's just a way larger population up there, obviously bigger cattle that are able to endure those colder winters a little bit better. You know, I live in a in Nebraska, obviously, where where we really, really like those black-hided cattle. And so there are differences there. But once we talk about, you know, the opportunity for black-hided cattle to give us certain premiums on the grid um, and at the packer, we also still see cattle in Canada that are grading uh, appropriately to have those opportunities for premiums outside of their hide color. And so, you know, our quality grade standards are pretty much identical between Canada and the U.S., we're just on the A system in Canada, which whenever I say that, people are like, oh, E-H, like A, what you guys say at the end of every sentence. And I'm like, no, the actual letter A. But so for reference, an A in Canada is a standard quality grade in the U.S. Double A would be a select. Triple A would be choice. And then prime is prime across the board. And so for our quality grading, we hold our producers in Canada to high quality grading standards. You know, with such a large export market, we do have interest in, you know, high quality beef. Um, and then our yield grade equation is also on a yield grade of five. The difference there is a little bit of a kidney pelvic heart fat difference. And so we would remove it in the Canadian yield grade equation versus leaving it in in the U.S. So then we do see that change in dressing percent um, across the board. But really, once you talk about true red meat yield, you're going to see pretty, pretty um, equivalent of what type those cattle are, whether they're continental cross cattle or more of a true British cross cattle. So to be honest, from my perspective, obviously hide color was different, grew up loving the Charlet breed. And I mean, I still love the Charlet breed, but I don't see as many white or tan colored hides in Nebraska. But for the most part, very, very similar. And, you know, the goal of every producer is to produce beef that the consumer is going to love. And I think from both a Canadian standpoint and a U.S. standpoint, we do a phenomenal job of, of creating high quality beef that's safe for consumers. So Ryder, Jessica, anything else you'd highlight in terms of maybe just some key differences or things you think would be valuable for producers in the United States to understand about the Canadian industry as we point towards wrapping up? You know, I think 
I think the the thing that strikes me over time is is the similarity and and the things I think I think we as the the smaller industry we watch the U.S. industry a lot closer and, and keep track of the numbers and 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 as you would with with something that's that big. But when I when I end up sitting across the table or, or sharing a lunch with somebody from any number of states, you know, will be at NCBA in Orlando next month. And and it comes to that after a couple of questions, it's like, huh, well, that's the same as us. And and that it's striking to me how often we get there after just a couple of minutes of conversation. The, the challenges are so similar. And then that it's striking to me how many people think how our, our industry has a lot more cattle than 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 it does. I guess one more thing too, and Ryder brought this up earlier when I was talking about, you know, cattle coming from Canada into the U.S. for slaughter. Ryder made a really great point about Canadian or Canada pulling more U.S. cattle in for feeder cattle. And and also the U.S. is pulling cattle down as well as feeder cattle from Canada into the U.S. And so there is that constant exchange of live cattle across the border, which I think just truly shows you that you know, the cattle are very, very similar. The standards and the quality of the cattle are very similar for those northern states and and Canadian provinces. And so I think that that in itself really shows just how aligned the two industries are and, and how, or the two countries are and, and how great beef production is across the board. Well, and how important that is from time to time too, or for different operations. So when you get into... Washington State, you know, the amount of cattle they produce, the, the packing plants they have there are pretty reliant on some flows from, from Canada to keep going. And similar to some feed yards and, and some other packing plants, there's some flex that comes um, from Canada south or from the U.S. north to help keep some of these operations viable, to keep to keep yards full and, and rolling and to keep plants operating as close to capacity as as possible when they drop below and and decide to stop operating we see those impacts sharply and widely so when they can have that flexibility that's hugely important you know there's one one more thing i'd i'd add canada and the u.s both are big proponents of science-based and rules-based trade around the world and we benefit from being able to send products around the world and and we work together on a lot of that trying to make sure that uh, that the world leans towards trade more than protectionism because we benefit from trade and uh, you know there's there's other countries and other areas you know the EU comes to mind that uh, seem to want to throttle trade and, and make it harder to export and and that's another thing that we've got so in common in, in Canada and the U.S. that our, our reliance on trade, our reliance on science and, and science-based approvals and, and wanting that to, to be the decision maker around the world is is a big common footing, but not something that we can take for granted because not everywhere in the world thinks that way. Ryder, Jessica, thanks for your time today. Thanks for your perspective on Canadian industry. And Jessica, just appreciated your perspective as well, having lived in Canada, obviously growing up there now, being in the States, both for graduate school and for uh, working with the University of Nebraska now as a beef specialist. And and Ryder, appreciated your perspective too, just thinking about the policy side, thinking about big picture view of the Canadian cattle industry, the 
interaction with the United States industry and, and your perspective on that. So thanks for your time today. You're welcome, man. Thank you, Eric. Enjoyed it. For more information on the topic we discussed today, obviously Ryder Lee, who's the Canadian Cattle Association's general manager, you can find his contact information online, as well as Dr. Jessica Sperber, who's an extension assistant professor and feedlot specialist. Her contact information you can find as well. Again, she's part of the animal science department at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.